You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 171, The Conway Cabal. Following the victory at Saratoga, General Horatio Gates was the toast of America. The surrender of General Burgoyne's army was an unprecedented event. Gates had long thought that he was a better general than Washington and had a history of looking for an opportunity to replace him as commander-in-chief. In late 1777, with Gates credited with the victory at Saratoga and Washington losing Philadelphia to General Howe, many others started to think that maybe Gates could be a better commander. The Conway Cabal is the name given to a loosely defined group of leaders in Congress and in the military who made some efforts to replace Washington with Gates as commander of the Continental Army. Thomas Conway, who is the title conspirator in this matter, is probably not even the leading figure in the events that unfolded, but he does play a role in these events. I've already introduced Conway as one of many French officers who arrived in Philadelphia in 1777 with commissions in hand to become generals in the Continental Army. Although born in Ireland, Conway moved to France at age six and became a lieutenant in the Irish Brigade of the French Army at age 14. Over the next 17 years, he served as a capable officer but remained a lieutenant even through his service in Europe during the Seven Years' War. After the war ended, Conway began to find his way up the promotion ladder, finally making captain in 1765, then major and finally colonel in 1772. Conway learned the political game of flattering superiors and making the right contacts to get ahead in the army. Seeing an opportunity for advancement in the revolution, he got a promised commission from Silas Dean and left for America in December 1776. Congress gave him a commission as a brigadier general in May 1777, and Conway served as a brigadier commander in Washington's army. Conway seems to have impressed himself at the Battle of Brandywine. Based on his service there, he requested that Congress promote him to major general. Washington objected to the promotion. In a letter to Delegate Richard Henry Lee, Washington wrote, quote, General Conway's merit, then as an officer, and his importance in the army, exist more in his own imagination than in reality. Washington pointed out that Conway's promotion over more senior brigadiers, who had also performed well in recent battles, would lead to more dissension among the military leadership. 
Earlier, Washington had endorsed Conway's commission as a brigadier, so this was a very different attitude he was showing. Washington's reluctance to support Conway's bid for promotion led to a tiff between these two leaders. With Washington appearing to be an impediment to his advancement, Conway opted to reach out to General Gates, whose star was on the rise after Saratoga. In early November 1777, word reached Washington that Conway had written a letter to Gates saying, quote, Heaven has been determined to save your country, or a weak general and bad counselors would have ruined it. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that the, quote, weak general was an obvious reference to General Washington. When Washington received the note, he sent it along to Conway, noting the quote. Conway denied that he had ever used the term weak general, but did not shy away from the fact that he was critical of Washington's leadership. The original letter has been lost, so we'll never know exactly what it said. Henry Lawrence, who did read the original letter before it was lost, said in a letter to a friend that Wilkinson did not get the quote verbatim, but that Conway's original letter was, quote, ten times worse in every way. Well, the matter might have ended there, but when General Gates received word that Washington had received information from his private correspondence, he wrote an angry letter to Washington in December saying that it was outrageous that someone had been going through his private correspondence and demanded that Washington find out who had committed this invasion of privacy. Gates did not name names in his letter, but it became clear later that he suspected the culprit was Alexander Hamilton. Recall, last week I talked about how Hamilton had ridden up to Gates' headquarters in New York in November to facilitate Gates moving some of his army south to assist Washington. Gates suspected that Hamilton had rifled through his papers while in Albany and reported this information back to Washington. Hamilton was in his sickbed in Peekskill when this whole matter erupted. As it turned out, Hamilton had absolutely nothing to do with it. Word had gotten to Washington from other officers who had heard this quote at a dinner with Gates's personal aide, Colonel James Wilkinson. It seems that when Wilkinson was taking his good old time traveling from Albany to York, Pennsylvania, to bring word to Congress of the victory at Saratoga, he had let slip this gossip. Wilkinson had dined with several officers, including General Lord Sterling and his aide, Major James Monroe. After a few drinks, he had quoted a few choice excerpts from the letter which Gates had read aloud to his aides. When Washington filled in Gates about the real source of the information, Gates had to put aside his efforts to shift the conversation from who leaked the letter to instead dealing with the substance of the correspondence. Again, though, that could have been the end of the matter. It wasn't the first time Washington had heard about subordinates who had wrote letters that were critical of his leadership or that he knew other generals who had some interest in thinking they could do a better job as commander-in-chief. The problem was that there were many powerful leaders in Congress who did not want this incident to go away. After this incident blew up, a contrite General Conway offered his resignation to Congress 
on November 14th. Instead of accepting his resignation, Congress granted Conway his desired promotion to Major General. On top of that, Congress recognized the Board of War around this same time in a way that appears to have been designed as an insult to General Washington. Uh, There was a Board of War prior to this time. John Adams had been running it. In November, however, Adams resigned his seat in Congress and returned home to Massachusetts. Congress at that point decided that perhaps soldiers rather than delegates should be running a board of war. They named General Horatio Gates as the new president of the board. Major General Thomas Mifflin, who had recently been removed as quartermaster general of the Continental Army, also sat on the board. Now, having military officers on this board created an obvious problem. Gates and Mifflin were both military subordinates to General Washington. Yet their position on the board gave them the ability to give orders to Washington. Many in Congress, including the recently departed John Adams, had come to the position that Gates would probably be a better military commander than Washington. Other powerful members of this group of thinking were Samuel Adams, James Lovell, and Richard Henry Lee. Another former member of Congress, Benjamin Rush, was also an outspoken critic of Washington and seriously considered his replacement. Rush wrote several letters, including one to Governor Patrick Henry, saying so. In December, in addition to promoting General Conway, Congress approved his appointment as Inspector General of the Army. In this position, Conway also could second-guess and attack General Washington with impunity. After receiving his promotion, Conway met with Washington at Valley Forge in late December. As was typical with someone who had disrespected him, Washington met Conway with a cold formality. Conway's ego, by this time in full bloom, took offense at Washington's treatment. He wrote a letter to Washington basically saying that the cold reception that he got indicated that Washington was unhappy about all this and apparently unwilling to work with the new inspector general. Conway said that he had better things to do in France and had no reason to stick around in America if Washington would not support him. Now, as I said, many saw all this happening, Congress's new board of war and the inspector general and much of the correspondence, all as an attempt to insult Washington in hopes that maybe he would simply resign and go home. In January 1778, Congress also received a pamphlet called Thoughts of a Freeman, and I have a link to the original document in my blog if you want to check it out. This pamphlet criticized Washington's leadership during the Philadelphia campaign and warned that the people were holding him up as a false idol. This, again, was another attempt to discredit Washington. In addition to attacking his military decisions, the document implied that Washington was taking on an irrational popularity among the masses and that this posed a danger to Congress. It played into the common fear that a military leader would rise up like Oliver Cromwell or Caesar who would overthrow the legislature and become a dictator. Both Washington's lack of military success, especially when compared with Gates, and the danger that he was becoming too powerful a leader, 
contributed to the growing opposition to him in Congress. It increased the desire of many to remove him and replace him. The new Board of War went ahead and met in York in December and January to discuss future plans. In doing so, they largely ignored Washington and planned a new invasion of Canada. The thinking was that with Burgoyne's army out of action, a new assault on Quebec would succeed. Following Burgoyne's surrender, the British had abandoned Fort Ticonderoga in November, destroying most of it and retreating back into Canada. Once again, the Gibraltar of North America fell without even a battle fought. If the Americans could launch an attack before spring, when the British might send reinforcements to Quebec, they might take the region and win the support of the locals. General Guy Carleton still commanded an army of thousands in Quebec. Most of the New York and New England militia who had won Saratoga did not really want to invade Quebec. The massive losses suffered by those armies that had invaded in 1775 were still too fresh in the minds of militiamen. Despite these concerns, Gates and the Board of War concocted a new plan to invade Quebec, with the Marquis de Lafayette leading the new conquering army. The board gave second-in-command to General Thomas Conway. Board members thought that the Marquis would be a figurehead given that the 20-year-old former French captain would defer to the more experienced General Conway. By placing French generals at the head of the army, the board hoped that the French-speaking subjects of Quebec would rally around this army of liberation. The board also added General John Stark as third in command in hopes of getting more New England militia in favor of the attack. Even the plan itself was tentative. Lafayette received instructions to invade St. John's and to capture the ships and dockyards there. At that point, only if he could win the support of the locals to join the American cause, he should proceed further. If not, he was to burn St. John's and pull back to New York. Congress approved this plan in late January. Gates's Board of War informed Washington of the planned invasion and requested that he deploy some of his army to Albany to participate. Washington, in a private letter a couple of weeks later, called the plan the, quote, child of folly, and really thought it was going to be a mess. But he kept his mouth shut and complied with the board's directives. Since the board did not ask for his advice on the matter, Washington did not offer it. Almost immediately, the project began to fly off the rails. First, the assumption that Lafayette would defer to Conway proved terribly wrong. Lafayette traveled to York, where he dined with General Gates and other top officers on his first night back in town. At the end of the meal, the men offered a series of toasts. Lafayette noticed the conspicuous absence of any toast to General Washington, so he offered one himself. His toast met with confused silence and helped him to understand just how much this group was seeking to undermine the commander-in-chief. Next, Lafayette appeared before Congress to oppose the board's decision of Conway as second-in-command. Lafayette demanded that General Johann de Kalb be given that role. Congress complied and Conway once again found himself on the outs. 
With that, Lafayette traveled to Albany, where he found an army of less than 1,000 men, some of them boys as young as 12 and old men above the age of 60. Further, there were no supplies, equipment, or even clothing to conduct a winter campaign, even if they could gather the necessary men quickly. Gates had told Lafayette that General Stark would probably have already taken St. John's by the time Lafayette got to Albany. Instead, Lafayette found a letter from Stark asking him when would he like to get started and how many men he might need. Stark did not say so, but was likely ticked off. Months earlier, General Gates had promised Stark would command this invasion of Canada. Now, finding himself in third in command behind two French officers, probably left Stark less excited about the mission. Lafayette consulted with other generals in the area, including Philip Schuyler, Benjamin Lincoln, and Benedict Arnold. With the exception of General Conway, who had joined the group without having a command and who was eager to proceed, the other generals all believed that this was headed for disaster. After determining that there was no way for the army to assemble the necessary soldiers and supplies in time, Lafayette wrote back to Congress saying that he would not proceed. Now, as I said, Washington had remained silent through all of this, but he was not ready to fade quietly into the night. He knew that any kind of power play opposing the inspector general or the board of war or any of their plans would just play into the hands of his enemies and convince people that he was a danger to civilian rule. Instead, Washington just threw the whole thing back at Congress. He dispatched the correspondence that had gone between himself and General Conway, as well as correspondence with General Gates about the revelation of Conway's comments to him. In sending this information to Congress, he said the following, quote, If General Conway means by cool receptions that I did not receive him in the language of a warm and cordial friend, I readily confess the charge. My feelings will not permit me to make professions of friendship to a man I deem my enemy. At the same time, truth authorizes me to say that he was received and treated with proper respect to his official character, and that he has no cause to justify the assertion that he could not expect any support for fulfilling the duties of his appointment." So Washington found that while he had his critics in Congress, he also had supporters. And one of those key supporters was the new president of Congress, Henry Lawrence. Communications with his son, John Lawrence, who was serving as Washington's aide de camp, helped President Lawrence to appreciate everything Washington was doing and what he was going through. Following Washington's letters came a memorial sent by nine Continental Brigadiers who objected to General Conway being promoted over them, just as Washington had predicted. In addition, a group of colonels protested Wilkinson's brevet to Brigadier over more senior colonels with more command experience. Seeing the strong objections from the military leadership, and also after reviewing the correspondence that made Gates, Conway, and Wilkinson all look like fools, any support for replacing General Washington very quickly evaporated. 
Gates and Conway both testified before Congress, but gave a poor performance. The Marquis de Lafayette took it upon himself to speak on behalf of France before Congress. He said that the French viewed Washington and the Revolution as one and the same. They could not conceive of another general taking command. Numerous other Continental officers also sent letters to Congress confirming that Washington had their full faith and support as commander-in-chief. With Washington's role as commander now firmly re-established, everyone tried to make nice again. Members of Congress at least silenced their opposition to Washington, having decided that Gates would be no improvement. General Gates wrote a series of letters to Washington trying to repair their relationship. Washington seemed to think that Gates at least was a good general, and made an effort to put the matter behind them. Gates resigned from the Board of War in the spring and took up a command in New England. There, he would remain away from Washington and most of the actions of the war for the next few years. When Gates discovered that Wilkinson was behind the revelation of Conway's letters to him, the two men got into a huge fight. Not only had Wilkinson started this whole mess by revealing this information to officers loyal to Washington, Wilkinson had also denied to Gates that he had done it. Instead, he tried to blame one of Gates's other aides. Gates had good reason to be angry at his aide's poor judgment and dishonesty. He went off on an abusive tirade against the young man, and according to Wilkinson's later recollections, the encounter ended up with Wilkinson challenging Gates to a duel and Gates accepting. This time, ordinarily, commanding officers did not duel with those under their command. But in this case, Gates seemed ready to resolve their dispute on the field of honor. Before the duel could take place, though, the two men reconciled and put the issue behind them. At this point, Gates was still serving on the board of war, and Wilkinson had become the board's secretary. A short time later, Wilkinson read some of the letters that Gates had written to others regarding Wilkinson's role in all of this. Wilkinson then wrote a letter to Congress accusing Gates of, quote, treachery and falsehood. He said he could not serve as secretary with Gates as president of the board. Congress accepted his resignation, and for the next couple of years, Wilkinson did not have any official duties within the Army. Several months later, both Gates and Wilkinson appeared as witnesses at the court-martial of General Sinclair, the two men got into it again and once again agreed to a duel. This time, they actually went through with it, firing three rounds at each other without any hits before they decided that their honor had been satisfied. Most of the public blame for the effort to unseat Washington fell on General Conway. Officially, Conway continued to serve as Inspector General, although he really did not have much to do in that position. Congress tried to transfer him to a position in the Hudson Valley, where he would be out of the action. Seeing the appointment correctly as political exile, and realizing that he was pretty well isolated and hated by most of his fellow officers under Washington's command, Conway once again submitted an offer of resignation to Congress in March 1778. This time, Congress accepted. After resigning, Conway did not return to France. Instead, he spent his time criticizing Washington and trying to justify his actions. Later that summer, one of Washington's supporters, 
Philadelphia Militia General John Cadwallader challenged Conway to a duel in Philadelphia. At the duel, Cadwallader shot Conway in the mouth. Cadwallader's only comment upon shooting Conway was, I've stopped that damn rascal's tongue anyway. Believing that he was about to die, Conway wrote a letter of apology to Washington, calling him a great and good man. Conway, however, did not die, but did decide it was time to return to France, where he rejoined the French army. Washington came out of this whole incident much stronger. Talking Congress of replacing the commander never again approached anything serious. Those who had opposed Washington muted their complaints and tried to minimize or deny their past opposition to his leadership. Next week, I want to cover some other incidents happening around this same time that Washington was fighting for his political and military survival. His army was fighting for its own survival during the winter at Valley Forge. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to Trey Nance and George Davis as Alexander Hamilton Club supporters on Patreon. I also wanted to thank Jason Patrie, who is already a Standard Bearer supporter on Patreon, but who also made a generous one-time contribution via PayPal. I very much appreciate the support. This week, I covered the Conway Cabal, which, as I said in the main show, was not really a conspiracy it was more of a disjointed and uncoordinated effort to replace Washington as commander-in-chief. It didn't even become known as a cabal until decades after these events occurred, when historians gave that name to the events. It's not unusual for lower officers to think they can do a better job than the current commander. On the British side, I've already discussed how Generals Howe, Clinton, and Burgoyne all expressed or implied such attitudes against their commanders. Given Washington's limited military success, and especially when compared with the success attributed to Gates at Saratoga, I suppose it's understandable that government leaders might want to at least consider their options. 
The namesake of the cabal, General Conway, was of course only looking to get promoted to Major General, a goal which he achieved. Let's face it, you don't get to be a general without some ability at self-promotion. Of course, when you push too hard, it can come back to bite you. After Conway shot off his mouth about Washington, someone literally shot him in the mouth. Following the collapse of the cabal, more sensible generals like Horatio Gates kept their mouths shut about Washington and quietly waited for other opportunities to present themselves. General Conway did finally return to France after his duel. Although he had been a colonel in France, he continued to rise in rank in the French army after his return from America, eventually reaching the rank of major general in the French army as well. He also eventually served as governor of France's colonies in India. Not too shabby for an Irishman. Unfortunately, things did not end happily for Conway. During the French Revolution, Conway maintained his loyalty to the king and eventually had to flee from France in order to avoid execution as a counter-revolutionary. Ironically, Conway, who had spent his entire life fighting the British, returned to Britain and fought under the British against the revolutionary government in France. Eventually, his life went full circle and General Conway retired to his native Ireland. He fell into obscurity in Ireland, but is believed to have died around 1800 at the age of 65. If you want to read more about the Cabal, there is a book on just that topic that came out last year, 2019. It's called Cabal, The Plot Against General Washington by Mark Edward Lender. This is a really in-depth look at the events of late 1777 and early 1778, when command of Washington's army was really at risk. The book is nearly 400 pages long and is a really careful investigation of the efforts to replace Washington. The author, Mark Lender, retired from a long career in academia, but continues to write books. He's also a contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution. If you don't want to read the whole book on the topic, you might want to try my online recommendation this week, Shortly after Dr. Lender released his book on the Cabal, he sat down with Brady Kreitzer on his podcast, Dispatches, which is affiliated with the Journal of the American Revolution. Lender and Kreitzer had a great 50-minute conversation about the events of the Conway Cabal, which he released as an episode on the Dispatches podcast. Now, beyond this one episode, I can't say enough good things about the Dispatches podcast. I've recommended it more generally in an earlier episode, and one reason I've actually been reluctant to start doing special interview episodes myself is because Brady Kreitzer already does such an amazing job doing this very thing. If you have not tried his podcast, you may want to do so. Of course, as always, I have links to both the book and the podcast episode on my website and the blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze.
It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.